All right, good morning, church. It's good to see you, and we are firmly in Christmas season. I'm going to be trying to wear green or red from this point forward, so uh, we're off to a good start here. I also know it's Christmas season because I now live in a home with somebody who actually decorates for Christmas. So that's exciting, kind of post-bachelor world. I took a picture for you of the sum total of my pre-married uh, uh, decoration life. It looked like this. Uh, we had a dowel rod Christmas tree that my aunt gave to me and a stuffed peep with a Santa hat. So I would say that we're moving forward in, in a good direction. Now uh, we've got a real grown-up um, adult Christmas tree, which is exciting. Yeah, that's a weird thing to clap for. Um, so, no, I'm kidding. Um, so you see my tree in the back there on the table looking bitter and resentful that it's been, been replaced, but that's okay. We'll, we'll move forward. Uh, excited to spend my first uh, Christmas uh, with with Jill, as husband and wife. It's a hard Christmas for her, as this is her first Christmas away from, from home, not able to go back for the holidays. In fact, uh, for many of us, Christmas can be all over the map. Uh, for some of us, it's our favorite time of year. Uh, we have friends and family who are near, right? Gathered near to us once more. That sounds all right. Um, but for some of us, man, this is the hardest time of year, isn't it? Broken relationships can be surfaced, um, some of the ones that we've lost from the past, a season of, of loneliness, maybe louder during Christmas and the holidays than any other time of the year. And for all of us, it's complicated and it's crazy, and we're reminded that for better and for worse, family matters. And this morning, we're going to look at Jesus's family tree and, and why it mattered so much then and why it matters so much to us now. I want to take heart to know up front, Jesus's family was just as dysfunctional as yours and, and mine. We can rest in that. Um, Christmas is the perfect time to launch into our next sermon series, uh, the, the book or the gospel, which means good news of Matthew. We're going to be walking through this um, starting here. We'll probably end in around uh, the end of October of, of next year. So we're going to spend some time here and it's going to be perfect. We're starting with the birth of Jesus at the beginning of Matthew, which is what, of course, we're celebrating this time of year. It also is a great connector from our previous series on the King of Kings as we look through the first three kings of Israel and we saw that they were all pointing toward the promised king, the eternal king that was to come. And so today you'll see why we've um, called this series The King and His Kingdom. We're going to look at the first half of Matthew 1 uh, we're going to call today's message the right man for the job. So a little introduction into the book of Matthew as we spend some time here. This is the first book of the New Testament. Um, and the author himself, of course, is Matthew. Uh, we know that today. At the time, each of the Gospels was actually anonymous. What that means is the books themselves don't tell you who wrote them, but the early church all said that Matthew indeed was the author of this. There really hasn't been a lot of controversy around that one. Now, we don't know a lot about Matthew. Uh, one thing we do know is he was a tax collector, which means he would have been trained as a scribe. In other words, he could write. And also, as a, as, as a Jewish man, he knew the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. He knew the promises that were to come. He was also called to be one of Jesus' 12 disciples. So he had firsthand knowledge and intimate experience with Jesus in his life and his teaching. Not a better person out there to write a gospel about Jesus. Now, why did uh, Matthew write this book? All, there's four different gospels. And they're all telling different stories about Jesus. It's one story, but they have unique vantage points because each one of the writers was telling us something slightly different about Jesus. And that crafted the way that they told their stories. 
And we do this all the time. Like if I'm going to tell a story to my doctor about why I think I might have a stomach ache as I come to him, there are going to be relevant details I tell him and a lot of things about my life that my doctor doesn't need to know, right? So I'm going to tell him, yesterday I had a five-pound bag of Sour Patch Kids. Not sure if that has anything to do with it or not, right? I don't need to tell him that I watched Frozen 2. Oh, it's in your head too, I know. It doesn't matter, right? It has nothing to do with my stomach ache, probably. Um, for some of you, like, that's exactly why I have a stomach ache. But um, we're going to leave details in or take details out according to the purpose of our story and our audience. So the, each of the gospel authors, are, they're not telling us everything about Jesus. What did John say at the end of his gospel? The whole world couldn't contain all of the stories about Jesus. But they're telling us something specific. And so the way they tell their stories and which stories they tell and which stories they don't tell are very, very purposeful. So what specific things does Matthew want to tell us about Jesus? Well, I think at the heart of what Matthew's trying to communicate is this. Jesus is the king. Jesus is king. And we'll see this come out uh, this morning. Now, his audience was primarily Jewish that he was writing to more so than the other Gospels. And, and I believe he's trying to do two things here. He's trying to assure Jewish believers that what they believe about Jesus is true as he tells the story. And there was this big group of Jewish unbelievers that he's trying to convince through the stories of Jesus that he is the king. He is who he claimed to be. And so Matthew wrote this book. And we're going to see two themes that are going to come out as we walk through this gospel together. The first one is one of promise and fulfillment. A lot of promises made through the Old Testament prophets that will come to fulfillment here through Jesus. In fact, 12 times in this gospel, we see the phrase, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. But beyond that, 21 times we see things like it is written or other phrases. And about 68 times there's explicit reference made to an Old Testament passage, let alone all the stuff that's implied. So what we're going to see is a lot of promise coming to realization here in Jesus. The second thing we're going to see, the specific thing that the promises and fulfillment point to are the authority and kingship of Jesus. 56 times in this book we're going to see the word kingdom used. That's more than any other New Testament book. And the specific phrase that's used here is the kingdom of heaven. 32 times. In fact, this is the only, only book in the New Testament where the kingdom of heaven is used. And the reason for that, you're going to see kingdom of God in some of the other gospels. And I believe the reason for that is the Jews, the way they revered the name of God so much that they wouldn't even speak his name out loud, Yahweh. And so when they said kingdom of heaven, heaven was a euphemism, a placeholder for saying kingdom of God. They knew the Jewish audience that Matthew was writing to, he, they would have been tracking with him. And I think there's three things that Matthew wants to tell us about this kingdom. Number one, the kingdom is now. He is going to over and over, he is consumed with getting us to realize that the kingdom of heaven is not just some future thing. There's an already not yet aspect to it, and we'll see that as we walk through the gospel. But we currently are citizens of king, the kingdom of heaven today, and that should therefore impact every area of our lives. We'll talk about that a little bit more at the end of the message today. The second one is that the kingdom is upside down. See what, how the letters are. All right, you guys are all right, you're with me. All right, Jesus is constantly saying things like, if you want to live, you must die. If you want to be the first, you must be the last. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you must become the least. We're going to see that Jesus's kingdom is polar opposite with the way that our current world's system operates. 
The third thing we're going to see is that Jesus is the one who is the king. What does he say at the end of the Gospel of Matthew? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the king. So with that, let's dive into the book of Matthew together. Now, we launched a reading plan, and we told you there's a calendar out back. They went like hotcakes, so we're actually out. Lisa's going to put more on the press. We'll have more next week, but we also have them on the website. If you just go to peninsulagrace.org, scroll down. Right there on the homepage, there's a PDF version. Most of us are kind of tablet, screen, iPhone world anyway now, and so you can grab it there, but we will have more physical copies in the back that'll run you through the end of next December. We're going to read through this plan together. Now, if some of you, you got uh, one of these copies and you flipped it open. We actually started it um, last Monday. was the first day of the reading program. And day one, you sit down with your cup of coffee. You're ready to go. I'm excited for God to speak to me, to warm my heart. Like, just tell me everything I need to know about life and godliness. You go to page one. You look at the first reference. And when you turn to that in your Bible, you see this. A giant list of names that you don't know how to pronounce. And you're like, I'm one day in, and I already quit, right? Like, I don't know what you're putting me up against. My sister threatened me to quit, and I said, you can't. You're my sister. Pastor's sister quitting would look bad on me. So she kept reading by force, but it's good. Um, What a weird way to start, right? What a weird way for for Matthew to start. Like, when I'm starting a sermon, I go for an attention grabber, right? Christmas trees. And and we're going to try to find a way to engage the audience. I don't just get up and go, good morning, I am Justin Blake Frankino, son of Theodore Scott Frankino, son of Theodore Frankino. Right? That would be a weird way to begin a message. So what is going on here? Why the list of random names? Oh, my hope is that by the end of this message, you will be delighting in your God because of this message, because of the list of random names that he starts this book with. It's the journey he took me on. I, I pray that he will take you. I, I pray by the end of this, we are all just in love with genealogies. We're writing them over on each other's faces. Like, we're just all in on lists of names. Now, that would be weird. Look at this. Th- five words in. This gets so cool. It says, the book, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to go Greek nerd on you for a moment, so just hang with me here. The, the word genealogy in the Greek, it, it, it is the, they pronounce it genesis. Now, some Greeks, uh, the sa- it's the same word that the Greeks used for the book of, oh, you guys are like Greek scholars now, that's pretty good, I'm impressed. Uh, yes, it's the book of Genesis, right? And the, the word means source or origin or beginning. So this is so cool. Five words in, Matthew's trying to tell us something. He says, you've heard the story of creation. And again, this is the Jewish audience, they're tracking with this. You've heard the story of creation. I want to tell you the story of a new creation. I want to tell you a story where Jesus recreates. He makes all things new. Anybody here need a new start this morning? This is what we have in Jesus, a new beginning. Now, how many of you could name your grandfather? Some of you, your grandfather might be in this room today, right? How about your great-grandfather? How about your great-great-grandfather? All right, we are whittling it down, right? Great, great grandfather. Some of you guys are history buffs. That's weird. No, you're good. Um, we don't, for us, genealogies don't mean a lot. We know maybe we're from Europe at some point or whatever, but we don't know a lot or, or have much significance attached to our genealogies. Um, with the, um, the Jewish people, though, it, it meant everything. For them, this was their inheritance, their land right. They're an agricultural society, so their land was their livelihood. So, so who they come from, it, it, it indicated their, the land that they would inherit. It was their birthright. It was a big stinking deal to the Jewish people. But the most important thing about the genealogy is the story that it told of their future 
hope, and salvation. And this is where it gets really good. So what we're going to see here is we're going to see a list of uh, three chunks. We're going to see three chunks of names. And in each of these chunks, there's a significant story that Matthew's trying to tell us. He starts with Abraham, who, of course, was the father of the Jews. This is the beginning of the nation. And what did he promise to Abraham? Remember Genesis 12? This is how the whole nation begins. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land in Canaan, and that's going to be where your people become this great nation. And not only are they going to be a great nation, it's through that nation that I'm going to bless all nations and all families on earth. So this is the beginning. And then he turns to the second chunk here. This is King David. Now, King David had a very special promise given to him. You remember this in our series, 2 Samuel 7. He's promised this son that will come from him, an offspring who will rule not just Israel, but the entire world and will reign forever. Remember we talked about that? Isaiah 11, really, really cool prophecy. It says, in that day, the heir to David's throne, or your version might say the, the root of Jesse, will be, the branch of Jesse, sorry, will be a banner of salvation to who? All the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. From Israel, this king will rule all nations that will come to him. And then it says, he will raise a flag among the nations and assemble the exiles of Israel. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. He's going to reinstate Israel to a monarchy. And, and in fact, this, this leans us toward the last chunk here, where he talks about the language he uses in the ESV is the deportation to Babylon, or the other word that in your translation might say exile. This is a period of, of Israel's history when all hope seemed to be lost. They were driven from their promised land. And this was part of God's promised judgment if they sinned and disobeyed, broke the covenant. So they're sent to Assyria, Babylon, most of the people not living in the promised land during this time period. But God spoke to the prophets through the exile, and he promises this deliverer, this coming king, who would restore Abraham's land and nation, would restore the, the king back onto his throne. But during this period of time, they had to wait for 600 years. Imagine waiting for 600, I'm 35 Imagine waiting for something for 600, generation after generation, dying, not being in their land, not having their possession, not having a king on the throne. No hope, no light that they can see. Only a promise. And at the, at the beginning of this list, they tell about the one who's going to bring light into darkness, who can deliver them from this period of exile. And says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the one who has come. Now, next week, we're going to look at that first name, Jesus. Today, we're going to look at Christ. Now, this is not his last name, right? You're not like, hello, Mr. Christ. Like, that's not, it's not Jesus Christ, the way I'm Justin Frankino. Christ is a title that's given to him. In the Greek, Christos, it means, uh, it means king, right? Or, or in the Hebrew, we would translate it Messiah. This word means the anointed one of God, the king. And Matthew's main purpose in showing us this list is that Jesus Christ, the Messiah king, he is the fulfillment. He's the one that will bless all nations through Abraham. He's the son of David that will rule forever and ever. He's the one that will rescue Israel from exile. And he's here. Now, he wants to show us that he has a legal claim to this position. That's why the genealogy. 
See, every Jew, of course, could trace back to Abraham, but not a lot of them had survived the exile, and even fewer of them could claim a connection back to King David in the royal line. So this is huge for them to believe that Jesus is who he claims. He has to come from the right family tree. But Matthew, and this is where it gets really cool, he's not just saying Jesus is another name on the most important list ever to the Jewish people. He is actually saying Jesus is the goal of the list. He's where the, the list finds its completion. So hang with me here. It's going to get a little, little nerdy, a little number-ish here. But what we're going to see is there's 42 generations that are listed out here. It's very intentional. And they're, they're grouped into three groups of 14. So each list, and he says this at the end, there, there are 14 generations in each one of the lists. So what's going on here? If you actually do the math, that is, that is not the correct timeline from Abraham to Jesus. There was much more time there. And there are much more, many more generations than what are listed. So what happened? Did Matthew mess up? I mean, there are obvious kings that are left out of that line. People that we know in the Old Testament that are left out. But remember, Matthew's trying to tell us something specific. So he's going to say things a certain way, leave out certain things. What's he doing? There's a couple things at play, but two things I want to bring out here. Number one, numbers were a very big deal in the Hebrew culture. And, and each letter, unlike what we have, each letter, each consonant in particular, had a number associated with it. And they often were telling a story through that. And so we take the name David, who the consonants DVD, right? Also available on Blu-ray. Um, you take four, six, and four, the Hebrew consonants, and it gives you 14. And what we see, part of what he's trying to communicate here is in each one of these generations, he's using the number 14 to remember the king from David's line is coming, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the king. But there's something even bigger here that I think he's trying to communicate. And I think the Jewish audience would have been totally tracking. It's a little bit lost on us. So the, the number seven in the Hebrew um, culture meant the idea of perfection or completion. This bleeds all over the pages of the Old Testament especially and, and the New. So we know that God created in six days, and what did he do on the seventh day? He, he rested, not because he was tired, but he said, it is, it's, it's completed. I did the work that I, I set out to do, and he, and he rests. So, so we see this pattern where God worked for seven days and then rested on the seventh. And then, then this is actually sewn into the fabric of Jewish culture. Of course, we know that they worked for six days, and on the seventh day, they would rest. Every Saturday was their Sabbath rest. But it goes even farther than that. They would work their fields for six years, and then on the seventh year, they would give the land a Sabbath rest. Wouldn't work it, wouldn't farm it. They would give it a rest. But then you step back one level even further, and every seventh of seven years, which would be 49 years, right? Seven sevens. There would be this 50th year that they would call the Jubilee. And this is crazy. No other culture would do anything like this at the time. They would, all debts were forgiven. So if you owed somebody some money, the debt was forgiven. If you had, if you had taken land from somebody or given it, it was restored to its original owners according to the tribes of Israel. F slaves were freed. Debts were paid and people were redeemed. So you see there was this going. Matthew here, he points out there are 14, he underlines it in the last verse here. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14. What's he trying to tell us? Well, there's three groups of 14 here. Or another way you could divide that up is six groups of seven. Six culminating with a seventh. So what is he telling us about Jesus? Jesus, when he was born, he was the beginning 
of the seventh seven. That Jesus is actually the completion of this list. That Jesus is the one who will come and restore not just Israel, but all creation to its original intent back in Eden. He's the one that will do this. And at the end of Jesus' work will come this jubilee where all debts owed to God will be paid. Every slave will be freed. Redemption, not just for Israel, but the entire world. It's amazing what we see Matthew communicating through the way, even the numbers that he uses in this list. So for the Jewish audience, the Jewish audience reading Matthew chapter 1 here, this is a people who's been waiting for thousands of years for the deliverer, for their king to come. Many of them in exile. This is not just a list of boring names to them. This is the most exciting news that they could ever hear. Our Messiah has come. Our freedom is here. When they read these names, it's like a parade marching down Main Street. And they're watching these names. They know where it's going. But, but every eye is waiting, every lung held in suspense for the last one to come, the most important person in the parade. Santa Claus. No, not Santa Claus. Jesus. Right? That's, that's the, always the right answer in Sunday school. Here comes the king. Now, if you notice here, though, if, if, you, if you were counting this week, um, the first list has 14 generations. The second list has 14. But the, thir the third list actually only has 13 generations. So you go, Matthew, like, what is going on? Like, you met, left out a bunch of people. You didn't even count the last list, right? You said there's 14, there's not. What's he trying to say here? I think what Matthew's trying to show, look at what it says about Joseph. He does not say Joseph, the father of Jesus. What does he say? Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. This is very intentional language. Because if Jesus had been born in the line, if Joseph had been his father, he would have been born as a sinner and unable to pay for the ransom of the entire world. Jesus had to have a different father. He had to have a heavenly father. Here it's saying God is Jesus' father, not Joseph. And he intentionally leaves the 13 here to say, Jesus, God is going to finish what man never could. Here comes the king. But according to Jewish law, if you adopted a son, they actually got all of the legal rights of a natural-born son. And so we still see here Jesus' legal claim, Joseph, while not his biological father, is his adopted father. And so his line would still trace back to David and back to Abraham. He is the king that was promised. And what good news for us, right? Who have also been adopted into the family of God. God our Father, and now Jesus our big brother. And we do say our big brother, because yes, Jesus was the king of the Jews, but we also see that his authority, his kingship, is not just over the nation of Israel, but over the entire world, over all of creation, over everything. Did you notice that there were uh, four women li listed on here bef before we get to Mary, who would be the fifth, and we'll talk about her next week. Now, in a patriarchal society, this would be very abnormal. They, they would always trace their lineage through the male line. They would never even include women on the list. So why does it say, why, why does it include these four women? Well, some commentaries have said, ah, oh, yes, these were women who were all accused of sexual shadiness at one time or another. Like even Ruth had that thing where she's like laying at the feet of Boaz, if you know what I mean, like it's kind of a weird thing. Um, God is showing us how Jesus came from this line of sinners, that he would even be associated with women like that. Here's the problem. Read the list of dudes. 
This is not some squeaky clean list of guys. I mean, we studied David, right? If David's life was a movie, you wouldn't be able to show your kids. This was literally murderer's row. Terrible king after terrible king, sinner after sinner. It's, no, the men and the women here are sinners. So why highlight these four women? I believe one of the things we see here is that, that all four women are Gentiles, which the word Gentile just simply means a non-Jew. And what, what God wants to show us here is that, is that the, the people, the Gentiles, have been grafted into the family tree of, of Jesus. Now, he couldn't do that through the men. Why? Because if one of these men was a Gentile, he would break the line from Abraham down through Jesus. The men had to be Jews, and so he shows it through the women. Remember, he told Abraham, I'm going to bless all nations through your nation. He told David, the king coming will rule not just over you, but over all the nations on earth. And the hope of Israel was not just that they would be freed from Babylonian exile, but they and all humankind might be freed from the bondage of sin and death. And what great news for us. Because if Jesus was just here to save the Jews, we would have no hope and I would have no application points at the end of my message. But praise God that he did save Jew and Gentile alike. And so we do have some application points. Let's make them now. What does it matter that Jesus is the king? What impact does that have in our lives today? Well, I was trying to come up with some names uh, for this series. And it was frustrating because people kept stealing them from me. Uh, at first, I was thinking, well, Jesus here, he's bringing a new genesis, a new creation, right? And so I thought, what about if, if we made some paraphernalia, said, make creation great again? That seemed good, but then I turned to find out our president sort of already used that slogan, so I was like, well, we can go on to something else. And I thought, you know, here's a good idea. How about Jesus is king? That wouldn't be a problem, right? That, that, that's pretty innocuous. Well, then it comes out that the hip-hop artist Kanye West took that title too, right? Huh? <laughs> he took the, if you don't know who that is, you are in a better place with Jesus than I am. Um, so I had to go, okay, we'll go somewhere else. And so we're going to call this message The King and His Kingdom, or this series. Jesus is the King, and He did come to make creation great again. And the reality is now that not just that He is King, but you and I are living in that kingdom. There's three reasons that should matter to us this morning. The first one it matters because the kingdom obeys the King. The kingdom obeys the King. So. For example, you know, you've probably heard your parents when you were growing up say, as long as you're under my roof. And, and what are they communicating? If you're living under my roof or the sphere of my authority as your mom, as your dad, then, then you, you do what we say, right? You're, you, you, you obey our curfew or you go to bed when we say to. Um, you eat what's in front of you, right? You do the chores. You are a part of this family. This is your identity. And, and you are called to obey us as your God-given authorities, and the same thing we're, we're seeing here is Jesus is our authority. We're living under his roof. Psalm 2 is a really cool messianic psalm. It means that it's a prophecy about the, the coming king, Jesus. It says in verse 1, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord, against his anointed one. There's that Messiah language. And it says, let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. It says, the kings of earth say, we don't want to be under your rule, God. We're going to do our own thing. To which God says, but the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He goes, oh, look at their cute little rebellion. <laughs> Verse 5, then in anger, 
he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. We make light of it, but we see rebellion against the king of kings is a very, very serious thing. Verse 6, for the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decrees. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Here's the language between Jesus and God the Father. Only ask and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. So Jesus says, I'm in charge now. All nations are given to me. You're all living under my roof. And so the implication for us is that we do what he says. That we are now called to bow the knee, Jew and Gentile, to King Jesus. In other words, he gets to tell me how I live my life. He tells me what to do. He tells me where to go. He tells me what to say. He tells me how to spend my time. Jesus is in charge. And that should affect the obedience in my heart in every corner of my life. Now, that's very countercultural for us today, right? Like we kind of bristle against that. Jill's little brother says it makes his head wiggle. We, our pride hates telling someone, having someone else tell us what to do. But this is the news. This is the reality that affects everybody. Jesus is king. And I'm here to tell you, his way is better. My heart often doesn't believe it. But Jesus' way, listening to and obeying him, is better. than me. I mean, We make crummy kings of our own lives. We make crummy gods of our own universes. We obey the king. The second thing it means is it matters because the kingdom honors the king. The kingdom honors the king. Now, you and I, we live in a very, a time of extreme irreverence. We mock everything. There's a meme for everything. There's this little one I found on the, the, uh, the Googles about this poor little dog being mocked by these big stuffed animals. Um, we, we make a mockery out of everything, right? Not a lot, a lot of respect, not a lot of room for reverence. What would happen if you walked into the Oval Office in front of the president, or he came walking into our, our gym today? Would you just be like, yo, what up, Prez? Right? Like, would you just flippantly, how would you react to the king? We are called to honor the office in our own country, we're also called to revere and honor and respect and lift high the name of the king that is above all kings. We, we often get so flippant with Jesus, you know, we, we, and we, we talk about it like Jesus is my boy kind of a thing. Like I found this, this coffee mug that says, I love Jesus, coffee, and naps. I appreciate the sentiment, but what can we sometimes slip into? We're just kind of putting Jesus on par with our love for coffee and naps. We might need to re-examine some things. Psalm 2 says it this way. At the tail end of this messianic psalm, it says, Now then, you kings act wisely. Be, be warned, you rulers of the earth. What are they being warned against? What does acting in wisdom look like for them? He says in verse 11, Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. It's an interesting combination of words. He says, for us to live wisely is to have this fear and reverence with God. Yes, it's joy for those who will honor him, but we rejoice with trembling. In you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared, David says. The other option is to not honor him as king, from which there will come nothing but judgment and separation. Now, yes, Jesus is intimate, and I want you to hear me. He's our friend. He is near, closer than a brother. And yet he is also completely transcendent and other and to be lifted high as the king. We obey him with our actions and we honor him with our heart. The last one, the last reason it matters to Jesus is the king. It's because it shows that the king is faithful to his promises to a messy, sinful kingdom. 
He is faithful to his promises to a messy, sinful kingdom. Maybe you came in here this morning feeling like the Israelites in exile. Maybe, maybe you came in here, this season highlights for you the brokenness, the, the loneliness, the, the hopelessness in your life. You are feeling abandoned and forgotten by everybody else, including your God. So maybe you come in here in this morning and go, man, why in the world would I honor and obey that king? Why would I trust him? Which is really, if we trust him, we'll obey him. So why would I, if I don't trust him? Here's what I would propose. Allow this list, this long list of names, to, to remind us of God's faithfulness to his promise. That for two, over 2,000 years, he faithfully preserved this line of the coming king. And many of those on that list, they feel like you do today. Those who were in exile, those without hope, that in their generation or in their parents' generation, for generations they had not seen this come to fruition. For us, this is just a name on a list that we can hardly pronounce. For them, each name represented a lifetime. And their timeline wasn't God's timeline. But God did not forget them. He did not abandon them. And he will be faithful and has been faithful to his promises. All of our needs are met in Jesus Christ, the King, the Messiah. And the other reason we can trust him here is because you look at this list of chuckleheads. And it, this family is just as dysfunctional as yours and I. See, Abraham the first guy on the list. I mean, this, this is a guy who, who doubted God and slept with his servant's wife to try to bring the promise about. I mean, we're one guy in and we're already off the rails. We, we already talked about David, right? He forces himself on Bathsheba, kills her husband, right? Just shadiness abounds in this list. And what a beautiful promise that God has chosen to work through messy sinners because we're in the exact same place today, and we need the exact same grace. God's kingdom is filled with a line of weak, depressed, deported, hopeless sinners who need Jesus, just like we are today. But God is faithful. The last two on the list, Joseph and Mary, man, they would have been seen as nobodies. They weren't king and queen at the time. They were marginalized. Israel hadn't had a, a, a pure Jewish king for hundreds of years. Societal nobodies who were invited into being one of the most prominent positions, the mother and father of Jesus himself. Our worth doesn't come from our place in society. It doesn't come from our merit and how, how good or bad we've been. Our worth comes from who our father says we are. We've been adopted into his family from our messy families into his messy, dysfunctional, grace-filled, blood-bought family. So it turns out, this, this family, this, this list of names, is actually pretty awesome. Um, we've seen here that Jesus is the right man for the job, the promised king, the only one who could fulfill this position come at the end of this line. And so this coming year, as we go on this gospel journey, here's what I ask, that we would do this together. As I said, you know, next week, grab a physical copy, get out of the website, check out the PDF, and, and follow along. Be in the word. Remember we called last week to be feeding ourselves and feeding other people. So we do this in community. We come up against some of these weird passages. What does this mean? We need to not only be in the word ourselves, but with other people in community to be talking about this, wrestling with the difficult questions. What does this mean? What does this mean for us? Let's get into the word and let the word get into us to change us. Matthew wants us to walk in the reality of the 
king has come. The kingdom is at hand. And let's live like it. Father, we come to you this morning. Many of us can resonate with the, those in exile, where we feel lost and, and hopeless and broken, that we can't even see a light at the end of the tunnel. Some of us come in here refusing to bow the knee to obey the king. Some of us are not honoring you with our hearts, with our actions, with the decisions we're making, with the thoughts that we're thinking, with the words that we're speaking. Lord, we are messy and broken, completely chaotic in our relationships and community without you. But we believe here, this list reminds us that you are faithful to your promises, that you will never leave nor forsake, and that through hundreds and hundreds of years, you preserved the line that led to, culminated, in the seventh of sevens, the jubilee that Jesus has come, that he is the king, that he's rescued us, he's freed us, he's redeemed us. Father, would we live in that reality this morning? May we be a people filled with hope and joy this Christmas season, not because our circumstances are all neat and tidy, but because in the midst of darkness, a light shines. In the midst of chaos, there is peace, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the eternal righteous King. It's the only place we can find our hope. Father, may we go out and shine that light, make disciples of all nations, live like Jesus is the King. It's in his beautiful royal name that we pray. Amen.